Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer, Anthony Calandra. Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Welcome to it. Welcome. Before I introduce our esteemed guest, I just want to talk a little bit about this tragedy that happened in Texas where 19 children so far and two teachers were slaughtered. And, uh, you know, I've been ranting about this for over 10 years now. And uh, why do we protect our politicians and our elites and money and jewelry more than we protect our children? I just don't get it. When are we going to learn? While both sides are dug in about the gun issue, we continue to see evil in its worst form, rearing its ugly head, and kids, our most valuable assets, dying. Why do we never hear about this happening in Israel? Why? Because in Israel, any school with over 100 children, the school has to be hardened. There's only one point of entry, and there's an armed military police or security guard at the entrance the entire time children are in that school. What could that possibly cost a country like ours that sends billions of dollars to other countries that hate us let them hate us for free and let's protect our children from this evil it is not the nra gun lobby that's the cause the nra spent two million dollars in lobbying in 2021 the pharmaceutical company spent 70 million in lobbying and the tech company spent 90 million in lobbying so it's not the nra's fault it's not the law-abiding gun owners fault rich mcbride sent me an email he says all of our politicians in washington dc their kids go to a school called Sidwell Friends. It's an exclusive yep. private school Absolutely. that's the first tier to go to. I demand that all of our schools in this country have the same security implemented as Sidwell Friends. Everybody listening to the show that has a child, a grandchild, or anybody in school right now should visit that school and ask the administrators for a copy of their security plan and demand that we have the same security as Sidwell Friends. Hard stop. Now I'd like to move on. I had to get that off my chest. This is our first remote in about three years where we're having a guest on. And since the Bruin case is about five Mondays away from erupting in this country, who better to have on this show than New Jersey's own 2A historian, Jay Factor. He's been on the show two other times. He's spoken at CNJFO and so many other organizations. This guy bought books that go back to the 1200s, I believe, or the 1500s. He'll let us know. But books without his wife fir- knows nothing about <laughs> correct <laughs> now we can't let her listen to the show right. jay is going to be discussing a bunch of stuff here and i'm going to cut him off if he goes too far but jay i want you to talk about sicardi post heller and brune obviously as well as the 1924 original need law let's educate the masses out there please without further ado jay factor hey just to comment on your on your introduction yes just so you know when this is all going to tie together with when we get into 1968 and 1969, but the New Jersey assignment judges based their rule, the Sicardi rule, to not issue handgun carry permits based on what was called um, Franklin Zimmering's National Commission of Violence uh, and Preventing Crime. And so <clears throat> it's a book, and in the book, the goal of the National Commission was to reduce the amount of guns in the population by 90%, 90-95% and to reserve the amount of guns that's existed to only law enforcement. So this whole let's disarm everyone and let's have these soft targets, this all goes back to Zimmering's National Commission which was, if you actually read Sicardi, um, the recommendation wasn't to limit carry permits, the recommendation was to limit purchase permits, you know, which post heller seems absurd, right? But that's what these guys were working on, and they just turned it in to carry permits because they knew back in the 60s they weren't going to be able to outlaw purchase permits. Um, Very interesting. So, wow. People are concerned 
with what's going to happen after Bruin, right? People are concerned how New yep. Jersey's going to respond. And so I thought it would be a good idea while we have a little time and everybody's speculating on what's going to happen to discuss a couple things in case New Jersey doesn't acquiesce. And I, I think what's going to happen is if you read Justice Thomas's dissents and the denial of certiorari for some of these cases, he's not happy and he has basically explained why the state's can't do what they're doing. And when I mean the states, I mean New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and the ones that are banning carry with these good cause and justifiable need provisions. But <clears throat> New Jersey's claim, this the, their first claim, and this is in every single court case. So this is in Gillard, this is in Rogers, this is in Cheeseman, this is in my case. After Heller, there was no 26 in Heller, and no 26 was... Um, we're not overturning all the presumptively lawful and long-standing gun laws on the books with this decision. Some, something to that effect. New Jersey immediately post Heller adopts the position that the Sicardi rule, which you guys know is uh, 2C58-4, you can't get a carry permit unless you have specific th threats, previous attacks, and a special need for self-protection. So New Jersey's claim is our law is long-standing and presumptively lawful. And so they go back and they talk about the 1924 law. There's a lot of things wrong with the 1924 law, and I'm going to point out here that it's illegal. And I don't mean illegal in a Second Amendment sense. I mean it's illegal in a New Jersey constitutional sense, and it's therefore illegal in a New Jersey legal sense. So... <clears throat> There's a patrolman. He's running for PBA president out of Patterson. This is in 1924. And in 1924, racketeers, organized criminals are really running amok. And the cops are outgunned. The cops are carrying uh, six-shot thirty-eight special revolvers. They're just outgunned. So he's trying to get carry permits installed so they can limit bad guys with guns. That's what this guy's trying to do. He gets a hold of one of our assemblymen from uh, up in that county. His name is Henry Hirschfield. And Henry Hirschfield writes a bill. I, I think we better go back. We better go back one second. When New York passes the Sullivan, the Sullivan Law, the Sullivan Law was designed because a crazy person stood outside a restaurant and shot a musician. And then when they arrested the guy, they found out this guy was insane. So the, the coroner in New York City, his name was George P. LeBrun. George P. LeBrun is actually the guy who drafted the Sullivan Law because he kept seeing all these organized criminal murders come in, but apparently when the crazy person killed the musician, um, it was too much for George P. LeBrun. And he even says, he wrote a book back then, and he said the object of the law is to keep the guns out of the mentally ill, the hands of the mentally ill, and the criminal element. And we all know that that's not what New York is doing now, right? No one gets a gun. So there are problems with the Sullivan Law in that justices of the peace, mayors, can all issue permits. And so what's happening is um, they're discovering that these organized criminals are getting permits in upstate New York. They're getting permits in some of the, on some of the islands. Um, there are judges who are selling carry permits for $15. Carry permits are supposed to be $2. Oh. They're selling them for 15 which if you do the math, is like $250 in today's money. And the New York City police start to get mad, and they won't issue permits. Uh, they will not honor permits that are not issued in New York City. So if you have an upstate permit or a permit from the islands or Oyster Bay, something like that, the New York City cops decide they're not going to honor those permits. Then the people in upstate New York say, well, if you're going to do that, we're not going to honor the New York City permit. So there's this big battle on whose permits are good and whose permits are not good. And so while all this is going on in the New York Times and the newspapers, our people are under pressure from the state of New York because the state of New York, the governor keeps writing letters to the editor in the New York Times saying that because New Jersey doesn't have a gun control law, all the criminals are leaving New York City and going to New Jersey and buying their guns and then taking them back to New York City. So wow. that's one of the pushes for 
1924 law was that New York was really pressuring us to do something. So Henry Hirschfield writes this law, and this is the first time in New Jersey that we've seen a requirement of need for a permit. But the Patterson Evening News reports that the Hirschfield anti-revolver bill, quote, will make it difficult for undesirables to secure revolvers, end quote. So there was never, <clears throat> there was never a, a desire to ban permits from Sandy Berardi and Anthony Calandro and Mark Cheeseman. It was to ban undesirables and criminals from carrying permits. Like just, just at the time, Patterson has 559 carry permits. South River has 147 permits. They know how many permits are out there. So <clears throat> Hirschfield, Hirschfield, the anti-revolver bill passes the assembly on February 13th, 1924. It goes to the Senate. There's a guy, his name is Clarence Case on, this, on the Senate. Clarence Case has worked on the New Jersey version of the Sullivan Law before. He puts in 25 amendments. The Senate approves the 25 amendments. And now it has to go back to the assembly, and then the assembly has to approve the amendments, make new amendments, or, or shoot down the amendments. And three days later, on March 7, 1924, the assembly approves the amendments. You, you go fast forward four days, Governor Silzer, who's the governor of New Jersey at the time, signs the bill. The problem is, the recording secretary of the assembly sends the wrong bill to the governor. He sends the original Hirschfield bill passed by the passed by the assembly. He doesn't send the bill that has the 25 amendments that were passed by the Senate. He sends the original bill, not the bill that was passed by the Senate and then concurred with by the assembly. So Basically, what that means is, I mean, we've all watched that show, right, on Saturday or Sunday morning, how a bill becomes a law. The bill, oh, yeah. didn't, the bill didn't actually go through the House and the, assemb or the Assembly and the Senate. It only went through the House. So, technically, in the New Jersey Constitution, you can't even give that bill to the governor. The guy made a mistake. It's not a law. So, Clarence Case has a has a friend and the friend wants to become uh, a security guard and security guards need permits so he asked Clarence Case how do I how do I get a permit so Clarence Case says let me go look at chapter 137 and uh, I'll tell you exactly what's involved I was involved with it but we put some amendments in it and it's pretty clear let me just go back and review the law and when he goes to look at the law the 25 cent Senate amendments aren't in there so he writes a letter to the paper and he's like, look, the 25 amendments aren't in the law. Something's wrong. And so the attorney general is Kat, Katzenbach. And Katzenbach is a, is a big name to remember because the son ends up becoming the attorney general for the United States in the, in the 1960s, the late 1960s, when we're going through these Dodd hearings and all these gun control things come on. So this big gun control family, Katzenbach. So Katzenbach comes out in the news. This is in May now, May 10th, and he says that the... Hirschfield anti-revolver law is rendered useless because the legislature sent the wrong bill to the governor and he didn't sign the bill with the Senate amendments in it, so it's basically not a law. So, at the end of his press conference, he does say Chapter 137 remains operative until the Supreme Court rules otherwise. There's a New Jersey Supreme Court justice, his name is Clarence Black. Clarence Black says, all right, um, we know there's a problem. We're going to look into the constitutionality of this, but I'm leaving for vacation in Italy, and I'll have to look at it when I come back. And so Black comes back for Italy, and nobody ever looks at the law. And, and the problem in 24 is they're still issuing permits. So... Unlike today, if Cheeseman goes down and Cheeseman's like, look, I work in a rough neighborhood, I carry a large amount of cash, whatever, whatever the, the reason is, a large amount of cash seems to be 
the phrase that the police were pushing when people but, went in for permits. That yeah, doesn't well, seem... What hap- Remember Al- Albert Almeida, when he said that, they told him to find a new line of work or right. hire a security guard. So right. had, well, there's no recourse for us. So go ahead. Well, Sorry about that. They, they, they'll, they'll, we'll see that they pulled that out in 68. But. Oh, okay. Go ahead. So what happens is the bill ends up, the Hirschfield anti-revolver law ends up becoming the law because no one ever challenged it. Right? We don't have a bunch of Second Amendment guys like the NRA or um, the FPC or, or anybody like that. And so people are still getting permits, and so nobody's really that upset about it. So the law stands. The problem, the problem is, and what we face now is that New Jersey constantly claims legislative intent, legislative intent. The, the purpose of the carry permit law is to prevent the misuse and accidental use of handguns, which is a lie, and we'll get into that, but they keep saying legislative intent. So Hirschfield leaves out constables, and so anybody who's ever looked at our carry permit law today, there are exemptions from the carry permit law. If you're a railroad policeman, you know, um, there's if you're active duty National Guard, and there's a whole bu- if you're a judge, if you're a bailiff, there's a whole bunch of exemptions on who doesn't need a carry permit because of their job, right? And so when Hirschfield writes the bill, he leaves out constables. And back in 1924, there is no Facebook, there is no twi- Twitter, and the constables are upset because in order to do their job now, they have to go get a carry permit. In, in, in the past, constables just carried guns. And so they write this nasty, nasty letter to the editor. I think it's the Patterson Morning Call is the newspaper. And who decides to answer the letter to the editor two days later but Henry Hirschfield himself. Ah. And Henry Hirschfield says, look, I, you know, this is our first attempt at, at the law. There's no reason you guys don't qualify for carry permits. Obviously, you qualify them. I'm sorry. It's only $2 to get it. I'm so, I take that back. In 24, it's not $2. In 24, it's good for five years, and it's free. That's what he said. It's good for five years, and it's free. You just have to go down and get it. So he then says only responsible people will qualify for a permit. The object of the law was to keep handguns out of the hands of the immature and the criminally predisposed. He writes this in the newspaper. So when we talk about legislative intent, the whole intent of the 1924 need provision was to prevent criminals from getting carry permits, not to prevent Mark Cheeseman from getting a carry permit or any of your listeners from getting a carry permit. So to put it in our terms in 2022 if you qualified for an FID card a 2C58-4 I'm sorry a 2C58-3 permit so if you qualify for a permit to purchase a handgun or you qualify for the firearms owner's identification card in 1924 the way Hirschfield designed the bill you qualified for a carry permit when we talk about legislative intent the reason, so let, let me fast forward to Drake, right? Are you, you guys obviously familiar with Drake? Oh, yes. He was a so, friend of mine, actually. J- Judge Hardiman yep. is, is livid in his dissent, and he says New Jersey has offered no evidence why the legislature has designed this law and why they want it. And he said, it, Heller, too, has told us that even under intermediate, intermediate scrutiny, the state is responsible for proving why they have the law. They can't just say they presumed it to be effective. And so the reason New Jersey doesn't, doesn't supply any evidence of why what we now know is the Sicardi rule or why handgun permits are ban- banned. Banned is a better word than limited. Mm-hmm. They're not limited. They're banned. They're banned. Yeah, the, the reason that they don't 
provide any of the Hirschfield testimony is because Hirschfield said the law, the need provision in the original law, which New Jersey keeps relying on for presumptively lawful and longstanding, he said that it was designed to prevent criminals from getting permits. So you, with the 1924 law, you have, you have a, two major problems. A, the legislator that designed it said it was designed to prevent criminals from getting permits, meaning everyone else could get permits. And he was very clear about that. And then he also, he, he also realized that it didn't, it didn't have the Senate amendments in it. And so he comes out in the paper and says, look, it was an error. The, the recording secretary just made a sim it's a simple error. And so if we, can't get the, if we can't get the permit law in in 1924, I'll just redo it in 1925 and we'll pass it then. It's not that big of a deal. So the guy who designed the bill knew it was illegal. And so what happens is the Supreme Court wants the law. So they don't do anything with it. But, and, and I, just wanted, I just want to put this out there. This is about everybody who's an upstanding citizen getting a carry permit in New Jersey. I don't do this because I want a permit. I'm not doing this because I want Mark Cheeseman to get a permit. Mark and I got together and started doing this so everyone could get a permit. And so if there's lawyers out there, and I don't care who you're with, uh, NGRPC, NRA, FPC, Second Amendment Foundation, it doesn't matter. If you want access to this history, and I have, in this 1924 law alone, I have hundreds of newspaper articles. I've got all of the wow. assembly records. I have all the Senate records. I know the name of the recording secretary. I, I know Silzer. I have all of Silzer's records on, on why he signed the bill, and it was to keep criminals from getting guns. That's in his, his second annual address. I have every single piece of documentation. So if you need a para to sit with you, and anytime the prosecutor starts lying about legislative intent to bump you in the, in the shoulder and say, hey, he's lying, here's why he's lying, give you a little note card on it so you can get up and, and rebut it, I will do that for you. So um, I'm just telling you, that's this nice. is information we need to know, and it's it. There's no price you can put on it. The price is the people. The people need to exercise their Second Amendment rights. And if you give me a call, I will get this information into your hands and help you in your case. So that's very nice, Jay. We appreciate that. So, so I'm sorry. Next. All right. So now that we know that the 1924 law is illegal. Let's talk about the prosecutors, okay? Um, in my case, the current case, my police chief has no idea how to handle a handgun carry permit application. Um, he told me that. He admitted it in court. And one of the questions I asked in court was, do you have a manual on how to process handgun carry permits? And he said, no. And I, I said, so the state police never gave you any instructions on how to handle carry permit applications. And he said, no. So my, my chief of police calls the prosecutor's office. So this is like 15 days, 13 days into my application. So we're, we're back in 2020. We're in October of 2020. And the prosecutor is already involved in telling the chief that I can't have a carry permit. So when the chief writes me the denial letter, it, it, it says in paragraph two, after consulting with the prosecutor's office and the firearms investigation unit, I unfortunately must deny your application. And if you go read the statute, the prosecutor is not even supposed to be notified at the application level. The prosecutor doesn't get notified until after the application is denied. And the person in this is the way the statute and the code read. The person who's supposed to notify the, the prosecutor is the applicant himself. So when I, send my, when I send my certified letter to the court requesting an appeal hearing for the denial of the handgun carry permit, I also have to send a certified letter to the prosecutor's office notifying him that I'm requesting a hearing. I have to send a certified letter to the superintendent of state police as well. Those three people, when you ask the court for a hearing, you have to notify 
the superintendent of state police, and the prosecutor's office. But that's so, not what happened in my case. My case, the prosecutor actually made the decision for the police chief. And so there so, is a reason that the prosecutor is not included in the statute. And so I'm going to take you guys back to 1933. So we're going to jump ahead in time nine years from 1924 to 1923. And I want you to remember... 1933. 1933, correct. Yes. In 1930, Monmouth County appoints Jonas Tooman as the prosecutor. And immediately when he becomes the prosecutor... Jonas, it's Jonas, J-O-N-A-S. Jonas appoints Harry B. Crook as county detective. Oh, that's you can't, you can't make it up. Nope. The funny, the funny thing about Harry B. Crook is I, I've spoken to Monmouth County detectives before. Every, every Monmouth County detective knows who Harry B. Crook is. They all know who he is. They all know the stories. Okay? So Crook has zero law enforcement experience. He doesn't even have a private detective license. He works as a security guard at Steinbach's department store in Asbury Park. <laughs> you can't make it up, right? So here's this guy. He, he's watching ladies shop and making sure they're not putting blouses in their, in their bags, right? He also is a security guard at several hotels in Asbury Park. And what you have to understand about the 30s, Asbury Park is hopping. Asbury Park is a huge vacation destination, and it's the, the hotel business is very big. Down there, so San Sandy was there. Sandy was it? Uh, unlike the, <laughs> unlike, unlike the, the shithole like, it is now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so so Crook Crook has to take his civil service examination, but Tuman has made him the chief of detectives, and so he he becomes the he he passes civil service exam and becomes the chief county detective in in 1931. Have you guys ever heard of Al Lillian? Yes. Al Lillian is the biggest bootlegger in New Jersey. He yep. might be he might be the biggest bootlegger in the Eastern Seaboard. Bigger than Nucky Thompson? Al Lillian is huge. We're talking millions of dollars in nice. the 30s, millions. He's got this huge house. They they the mailing address is technically Middletown, but it's in Atlantic Highlands on the top of the on the top of the mountain overlooking Raritan Bay. The house, the property is still there. The house burned down, but there's tunnels from the top of the mountain that go down to the beach. And the bootleggers used to bring their, they used to bring their skiffs into Raritan Bay and beach them, and then they would take them in these tunnels and they'd store all this stuff at, at Al Lillian's mansion. Wow. Anyway, everybody knows Al Lillian's organized criminal. Uh, uh, they called him a run, rum runner back in the day, but he's a bootlegger. He's arrested in Spring Lake in 1932 with two 38 caliber revolvers in his car. And the grand jury, it goes to a grand jury, and they reach their decision in April of 1932. Somehow, three months later, the grand jury reconvenes, and they decided that they don't need to indict Al Lillian, and they withdraw the case. And the prosecutor, Tooman, never, never takes the case to court, right? So Al Lillian gets off scot-free. He's then murdered in 1933. There's this big Italian mafia, Jewish mafia, um, big turf war on who's going to control the booze, and people start getting killed. Al Lillian is murdered. Um, after Lillian is murdered... There's two beer barons, and these guys are bad are bad guys. One's name is Max Hassel, and the other one's name is Max Greenberg. Now, they both say that they live in Asbury Park, but at the time, it was commonplace for these racketeers and bootleggers to rent out entire floors of hotels. And then they would station their guys on all the stairwells, and that's how they protected themselves, was by living in these hotels. And so... There's this huge shootout at the Berkeley Carteret Hotel in Elizabeth, and when the shooting is over and the cops go in, they find Max Hassel and Max Greenberg dead. And so these guys are the second and third biggest 
beer racketeers after Al Lillian, and now they're murdered too. And so the investigation into these guys goes on, and they find out these both these guys are carrying Monmouth County carry permits. <laughs> so they start to investigate, and they see that the the permits are approved by Police Chief Byram from um, Asbury Park. Both of these guys state that their residence is the Kingsley Arms Hotel in Asbury Park. I don't know if it's still there or not, but that, that's what these guys say. Byram claims he didn't know these guys were racketeers and just went off the, the three references that were on their application. So as the investigation ensues, they find out there's a guy, his name is Irving Wexler, also has a Monmouth County carry permit. Have you guys ever heard the name Irving Wexler? No. Irving Wexler is Waxy Gordon. <laughs> Waxy Gordon is on the FBI's most wanted list. And Waxy Gordon has a Monmouth County carry permit that is issued out of Tooman's, Tooman's prosecutor's office by, signed by, Harry B. Crook. And so what happens is when Harry B. Crook becomes the chief of county detectives, he goes and tells all these police chiefs, hey, you guys don't run your own investigation for carry permits. We do it. And we'll sign off on the carry permit, and you guys don't have to do anything. Uh. Right. Tooman has a brother. There's a law firm in Asbury Park called Tooman and Tooman. And they have a lawyer working there. His, his name is David Davis. Every single one of these guys, uh, Max Greenberg, Max Hassel, Waxy Gordon, go and sit down with David Davis. David Davis puts together their application. David Davis comes up with the three guys who are the references. One of them happens to be the hotel manager at the Kingsley Arms Hotel. And... He gives it back to the police chief and says the investigation's done, all the paperwork, all the paperwork is certified. The police chief signs it and then David Davis sends it off to the Asbury Park judge, Truex, and then Truex signs it. Truex, in his defense, says, well, listen, my internal policy was I don't sign any carry permits unless the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office signs off on it. Hmm. So there's these investigations that follow. They, there's a guy, his name is Big Yak Sangiacomo. He's a huge mobster. <laughs> yeah, you can't make that name up. He's a huge mobster. Everybody knows he's a mobster. He's got a, he's got a Monmouth County carry permit. And so they start to go after Tooman, and they realize what's happening is that Tooman is actually in bed with these, these liquor racketeers, and that the liquor racketeers are paying Tooman and Tooman Law Firm and sending their, their people down there. Tooman and Tooman Law Firm is then paying Harry B. Crook, and Harry B. Crook is getting these perm is, is signing off on these permits. Tooman himself, when, when Waxy Gordon goes and, and renews his nineteen thirty two and nineteen thirty three carry permit, prosecutor Tooman signs it himself. The guy's on the the guy's on the FBI's most wanted list. And so what happens is no one gets in trouble because Judge Truex says, well, I, I was taking it on good authority that the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office was, was handling this. The police chief says, well, I, I was under good authority that the Monmouth <laughs> County Police Chief was handling this. Harry B. Crook comes out and says, no, 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 that's not true. We were just... What we were doing was a courtesy for the police chiefs. It was a courtesy. They, if they wanted us to check their applicant through the records, we did it. So nobody actually loses their job or gets fired over this. The reason, the reason the prosecutor is not involved in carry permits goes back to the New York Sullivan Law. Because New Jersey knew either the judge or the police chiefs or the mayors, there was a whole bunch of people, uh, justices of the peace, other people that could sign carry permits in New York at the time, but this was in the paper. These guys were all on the take. They were selling carry permits for $15. <laughs> the, 
New Jersey, that's the reason that the judge issue, oh, he only issues the permit because the judge is providing a check on the police chief. The police chief runs the investigation and approves the guy, but they want to make sure the police chief isn't making $15, so then the judge issues it to make sure that, you know, one police chief, let's say my police chief in Fairhaven, doesn't have 600 permits out, and three of them are to, to guys on the FBI's most wanted list. That was the system. It was a system of checks and balances. That's why it was designed. It wasn't, it wasn't because judges were all powerful and were going to control the permits. It was because judges were on the take. That's absolutely fascinating. Wow. More J Factor when we come back. Are you still fighting crime the old-fashioned way? Now cut crime in half the time with a fast, easy money-saving solution. Introducing the Shipbaggerator. This year's all-new crime deterrence marvel from the makers of Gun For Hire Radio. The Shipbaggerator's compact design makes it quicker and easier to use than jail cells, parole boards, lethal injections, or those costly, outdated electric chairs. Just park your Shipbaggerator in the town square, open the lid, and drop the shipbag in. It's that simple. There's no wrong way to use it. Back and forth, side to side, round and round, shipbags go in and come out as a mound. Super sharp stainless steel blades that never need sharpening do all the work. Slice ship bags so thin they only have one side. Built strong to last, they slice through even the toughest ship bags. Murderers, rapists, child molesters, no problem. Just set it to high, and the ship baggerator's powerful patented motor will handle them three at a time. No muss, no fuss, no bogging down. Just pop the top. Drop them in and watch as the powerful counter-rotating blades pull any size ship bag through at two feet per second. Amazing! Cleanup is a breeze. Just rinse with a fire hose or run it through the car wash. There's even a pulse setting for serial offenders. Save up the worst and delight the crowds on the 4th of July. Who needs fireworks when you've got the ship baggerator? And it's portable, so you can take it anywhere. But wait, there's more. For a limited time, we'll send you four additional sets of special stainless steel blades that never need sharpening. So now you can chop, slice, dice, and cube. The ship baggerator and four specialty blades, all for the same low, low price. Unbelievable. So don't wait. Call and get yours today. The ship baggerator is available only at Gun For Hire Radio. Operators are standing by. With the news, events, and political shenanigans impacting your freedom, you're listening to Gun For Hire Radio, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. I hope you're all paying attention to what Jay has been spending years working on, but a little housekeeping right now. Uh, Marty's V-Burger, martysvburger.com, uh, 20% off, mention Gun For Hire, Gun For Hire Radio. You can pick it up at Freakin' Vegans in Prospect Park on Freakin' Fridays as well. Uh, let's talk about Decoding Firearms by John Petrolino. It's available on Amazon as well as here at the Gun For Hire retail counter. The Gun Lawyer Podcast, exposing the truth about the laws designed to strip you of your freedoms. Gun.lawyer. Evan Knappen is the man as well. Support those who support you, okay? Bookmark this page, The Quarantine Crawl. Over 350 pro 2A businesses and organizations. Please keep it in the family, ladies and gentlemen. Doctors are listed, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, okay? <laughs> Crime Proof, Think Like a Criminal and Beat Them at Their Own Game is also available at CrimeProofBook.com. Amazon, Kindle, or if you order it from CrimeProofBook.com or come into the range, you might get an autographed copy. My personal physician, Dr. Joe Sampatero, Optimal Health Wellness NJ, Concierge Medicine. For a few bucks a month, he will be your doctor 24-7. My gun store is opening up. Grand opening is 4th of July. Soft opening for the gun store at Gun for Hire, 2,200 square feet. Monday, June 6th, we will be having short hours, limited hours, limited staff, bringing guns in. 
uh, an accessory. So the soft opening is Monday, June 6th, the ladies and gentlemen. Zen Float Center, 219 Park Avenue, Scotch Plains. ZenFloatCenter.com. Ask for Sharon Decker. Also mention Chris. Without further ado, J-Factor is in the 1930s. And when he segues into the 60s, we're going to talk about the TikTok Bruin case. And all you liberals out there listening to the show, get your pink hats out and get them ready. Go ahead, Jay. Hit it, my man. All right. So let's just fast forward now to 1966. So when we talk about legislative intent, the legislature did not design the gun control law. It was designed by Attorney General Sills. The Supreme Court knows it. The legislature knows it. Everyone knows it. Um, In Burton, it was admitted that Sills drafted the gun control law. So everybody knows the, the 1966 gun control law, which is what we're operating under now, is not legislative intent. It came from the attorney general who got who did it because three prosecutors asked him to do it. So it's really, when we say legislative intent, it's almost a joke. But one of the this things that Sills says, there's a big hearing in March, I think March 2nd, 1966. Um, they have this big hearing about the gun control law, and Sills gets up to answer questions. And, and you know, there's a lot of people like which part of which part of shall not be infringed. Don't you understand? There's a lot of that going on. But there are some people asking legitimate questions. But one of the things Sills says early on in in the testimony is that for those who wished, this is a direct quote: for those who wish to carry a pistol or revolver, permits will be required as they are under present law. End quote. And so. That's important because we just heard from the 1924 law that the need provision in the 1924 law was to prevent, to prevent criminals from getting permits. It wasn't designed to prevent Marchesman from getting a permit. Mm-hmm. So in 66, it's still just need. There is no justifiable need. That doesn't happen until 78. But, um, Anthony, I just need to ask you a question, and you got to kind of explain this to the, to the listeners. Go ahead. As a gun store range operator, who is in charge of inspecting you and making the rules for the gun store and the range? Well, the overseer is the ATF, and the ATF, the Alcohol, Alcohol Tobacco, and Firearms, is not uh, that invasive on us. They come in, they make sure that we're our 4473s are filled out, and all our T's are crossed and I's are dotted. They're pretty cool. Uh, the real overseer is the New Jersey State Police. They come in at random. They do inspections. They inspect our store. All of our employees have to have pink cards, which means they have to have background checks and everything. And the state police come in really hard, making sure we're not bringing in short barrel rifles or suppressors or you know high cap magazines or whatever the standard cap magazines, whatever it may be. So I, I have two bosses besides my customers. Okay. Okay, so that's important because it's written in the law that the state police are in charge of your regulations. And they're the guys who make the administrative code, the state police. That's also in the carry permit law and the purchase permit law that the superintendent of the state police takes the requirements of the statutes and puts them in the application. And so... By law, if it's not on the application, they can't ask you for it, right? So they couldn't Correct. ask. They couldn't. They can't ask you for other things. Like we, we've heard, we've all heard these stories about, you know, Jersey City and some of these other towns that are asking you for for ridiculous paperwork and you know a letter from your fourth grade teacher saying that you are a good student and never had detention and and, and, and other <laughs> impossible, <laughs> right? Other impossible yeah. things. But yep. the law is. All the regulations are defined in the statute, and it's the superintendent's job to take that and put them in the application. And anything else that he needs in the application to ensure that the the letter of the law is carried forward. And that's kind of the wording. Anyway, the assignment judges... Oh, okay. So, Sicardi, Sicardi is a 1970 case. But you guys know I applied for my carry permit in 2020, and I'm, I still haven't even gotten out of appeals court yet two years later. So 
A right delayed is a right denied. They're oh wearing you oh. down. Oh they want God. you to run out of money. They want you to run out of time. They want you to move. They want you to die. But what's Knappen say all the time? They issue carry permits in New Jersey posthumously. After you're dead, we get a carry permit. Right, Jay? Yeah. yeah. At, the, at the same time as Sicardi, there's two other cases the same day. One is called Riley B. State, which is five doctors out of Newark. And they, they all had carry permits from 1960 to 1969, and their 1970 permits are denied. There's a, another case called in reapplication of X. X, they don't give his name, is a diamond dealer, carries large amounts of diamonds. He's had a carry permit for the previous six or seven years, and his 1970 permit is denied. On the same day that Sicardi, these two cases come up, right? And so the doctors were, uh, I, I make house calls late at night in dangerous neighborhoods and I carry narcotics. That had been their reasoning for getting permits for the previous 10 years. And then uh, X was that I carry uh, loose diamonds to go to sell them at jewelry stores. And that was his, that's why he got a permit. And so there's... One of, the, one of the interesting things is that in 1968, New Jersey comes out with the Administrative Procedures Act. And in the Administrative Procedures Act, the same issue of 1968 that it comes out, the regulations for what we now consider the administrative code in the uh, gun permit law come out. And the name of the New Jersey Register at the time is 1NJR30. So this is like uh, December of 1969, this thing is printed. And they actually have a copy of the 2C58-4 handgun permit application in it. The word need is not even on the application. There's a small box. So like it's like name, address, occupation, height, weight. And then it says reason for the application. You might be able to fit five or six words in that box, that's it. There is no written certification of need. They're not even asking for need. It, it's not even on the application. So this is documented in the New Jersey record. Again, the only person who's supposed to be making the rules, what's required in the application process is the New Jersey State Police. In December of 1968, the assignment judges have a conference and they decide that only law enforcement and security guards are going to get carry permits. So there's no law. They just sit around there and no drink law. wine and decide that they're going to, this is what they're going to do. I think they all have a copy of Franklin Zimmering's, um, it's called Firearms and Policy in American Life. That's the same as the National Commission for Causes and Prevention of Crime. The, the National Commission for Causes and Prevention of Crime is the version that went to the federal government. Firearms and Policy in American Life is like the law review, is like gotcha. the law review. It's the exact same thing. There's two different ISDI numbers on it or whatever those book catalog numbers are, but they're exactly the same. I've got them both. A anyway. These guys, these guys decide, um, there's a judge um, in Patterson who gives an interview, and he's like, look, it's not my law, it's not my rule, but there are too many guns in circulation, and we need to prevent all these guns in circulation. That mm -hmm. is the judge's reasoning for this law. So it's a no exceptions policy. This, I have this in writing. This is in writing. This is a big deal. This, is, this, this doesn't hit the press until 1968, but this is a big deal because, like I said, some of, these, some of these counties have 500 or 600 guys with carry permits. As they go back to get their carry permits renewed, all these guys are being denied. So this is in, I'm talking about the Star-Ledger, the Courier News, the Asbury Park Press. All of the newspapers are carrying this story. The judges are given a memorandum by Edward P. McConnell. He is the head of the administrative office of the courts. He sends out this memo, and the memo in December of 68 is, remember, we agreed at our meeting we weren't going to issue ca any carry permits unless it was to law enforcement or security, 
it's a no exceptions policy. We're waiting on the state police to put, put an input. And we'll talk about it at the next meeting. The wow. state police go, well, we think carrying large amounts of cash or carrying doctors carrying narcotics, like there are some exceptions. And, and they gave basically the same exceptions people have been using since the 1920s. They've been given these. They gave large amounts of cash, carrying narcotics, those kind of things, to the judges. And the judges hold another meeting in March of 1969, and they say, nah, we don't like it. Even though the guy who's really supposed to be making the rules is the superintendent of the state police, the judges have usurped that authority, and they go, no, 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 no. We don't like those exceptions. Until, until we can agree with the state police, it's a no exceptions policy. No one except law enforcement gets a permit. This is, this is written in the press. This case, Sicardi, what we know is Sicardi, the Supreme Court case, the, the transcript is a little bit off. So the Supreme Court case is not the case where Sergeant Klaus and the, the Sicardi police chief testified. That all happened in the appeals court. So everything that Justice Jacobs says in the Supreme Court about those people is taken out of the transcript. But when they talk about the internal policy of the assignment judges... There is, like, you could go into the New Jersey court rules. There's a book. It's about four inches thick and has every rule of court procedure in it. There is no Sicardi rule in there. There is no uh, handgun carry permit issuance. There is no specific threats. There is no uh, previous attacks, and there is no special need for self-protection. That all comes out of Franklin Zimmering's Firearms and Policy of, in American Life. Those are all, like, quotes from, from that law review. And, and the judges never print this anywhere. The interesting thing is, and again, we talk about the NRA and the FPC and the ANJRPC, guys who are, having, um, who are running court cases. The, the state doesn't want to admit this. And this is why they keep harping on this legislative intent. Because if you read it, if you read page 2821 in Heller, it says... It's not for judges to decide if the right is really worth insisting upon. And that, and that's, that goes back to the Cheeseman ah, case, right? Okay. It says it's not for judges to decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. They're not hmm. just talking about the judges there. They're actually talking, when they say that, they're, they're talking about the third branch of government. They're talking about all three branches of government. So it's really not for the legislature to decide if the right is really worth insisting upon or for the executive branch to decide whether the right is really worth insisting upon. There has to be some kind of standard. What the judges did was they make this no exceptions policy. Justice Jacobs dresses it up by using the, the phrasing out of Zimring's firearms and policy out of, out of American you know, firearms and violence in American life. And put specific threats, previous attacks, and a special need for self-protection um, in it to make it sound more official, but it's a no-exceptions policy. They didn't know this in Drake. New Jersey claims that they do give out handgun carry permits. They claim there is a standard. There is no standard. The Sicardi rule, as we know it today, and the Sicardi rule is not my word for it, that comes out of Priest. Priest called it the Sicardi rule. Previous attacks, uh, Documented threats, special need for self-protection. Mm -hmm. that, that comes from Firearms and Policy in, uh, in American Life, which is not printed until 68. I think the government version is not printed until 69. The judges are using that to cover. Justice Jacobs knows this. He's covering for the no exceptions policy because he knows he can't use the same the same argument he used why Burton and why the why the gun control law is constitutional in Burton. Look, there's standards. I think the standard is the gun control law is designed to prevent criminals and unfit elements of society from acquiring uh, firearms while enabling the fit elements of society to acquire them with minimal burdens and inconveniences. That's pretty close to direct quote coming out of Burton. But here there is no minimal burden. It's a no exceptions policy, and no and no one knows this, but I've got 25 different newspaper articles that have this guy, Edward B. McConnell, saying it's a no exceptions policy, in quotes, in the paper. It's not just one paper. It's not just one reporter. It's every reporter in New Jersey is reporting on this, and everybody 
in New Jersey in mid-1969 when they start turning carry permits down knows that this policy came from judges, not the legislature. Wow. You, wow. Would, you would think it would be in writing somewhere, right? It's not in writing. You can't find it anywhere until 2018 when they put it in the code. But the beauty of them putting, I'm sorry, when they put it in the statute in 2C58-4C paragraph 2, paragraph 3, I'm sorry, they put the Sicardi rule into the statute. Remember that? Because they, they were mad at Christie for trying to, to make permits easier to get. Correct. So, but in the statement of the bill, I think the bill is 2758. In the statement of the bill, it says, this bill s simply codifies the administrative code into the, into the statute. That's what it says. So basically, they're putting the, the rule made the, illegally made by assignment judges who were usurping the authority from the superintendent of state police and putting it into, putting it into effect. The... Sicardi rule never shows up in the administrative code until 1991. The code has to be redone every five years. So it's not in there in 69. It's not in there in 86. In 91, it comes around. It doesn't even come around as a, as a rule. It comes around as Supreme Court precedent from Inri Priest. Inri Priest takes it from Sicardi. Sicardi took it from the assignment judges. So the whole thing, the whole thing avoided the Administrative Procedures Act, took the authority away from the superintendent of the state police, and went into the law illegally, and then the legislature, they don't know what they're doing, so they take this illegal law, and then they put it into the statute. But the beauty of this knowledge is that, like in Drake, the majority in Drake said, well, New Jersey had good reason, the legislature had good reasons for doing this. No, they didn't. The legislature never did it. It was the assignment judges. And we know from Heller that judges aren't allowed to do this. And that's why it's super, super important because what I think is going to happen, because I've, I read Thomas's dissents from denial of certiorari, and he, he basically writes the same thing every time. But the one in Rogers is fantastic. Like You can tell when you're reading it that Thomas is angry. And he's not angry because he didn't get his own way. He's angry because he basically... Uh, he and Scalia told us in Heller what you could and couldn't do. Yep. So there's a section of Heller that says, if bare arms means, as we think, simply the carrying of arms, a modifier can limit the purpose of the carriage. Well, if you if you move the commas around there, it that reads, we think bare arms means simply the carrying of arms. Like, so if bare arms means carry arms, then how do you how do you ban carry permits? Because then you're banning bearing arms. And again, it goes back to that 1968 Burton case. They still think the National Guard is the militia. They still oh, yeah. think the state police is the militia. They still think the police are the militia. They still think the organized governmental units are the militia, and they don't want to let it go. So let me ask you a question, Jay. With all of this history, what what is your opinion? How do you feel? Uh, that, what do you think the Supreme Court is going to be? Five four or six three? And what are you feeling? Because everybody in New Jersey is waiting impatiently for this. If you're going to uphold Heller, you can't decide on a case by case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. So that that means need is out. Uh, what is it in New York? Good cause? Yeah, probable cause in New York, justifiable need New Jersey. Uh, and then there, there was a Jensen had a case in Jason Jensen had a case in what? Um, was that Connecticut? Connecticut. They, they they have something something like good cause too. So they're going to say, look, you you guys can't do this. There has to be a standard. And so if you go to the last page on Heller twenty eight twenty two, it says assuming. Dick Anthony Heller is not disqualified from the second, his Second Amendment rights. The district must allow him to register his handgun and issue him a permit. So those are two different things there. And if you follow the case, that case, if you read that whole case, there was three complaints in Heller. The, the first complaint is actually a carry permit complaint because you needed a permit to carry anywhere in the district, even your home, which was a little different than us. Then the second complaint was a registration complaint, and the third complaint was the trigger lock complaint. What happens is, during the oral testimony, D.C. said, look, 
if you guys find that um, we have to allow Heller to register his handgun, we're just gonna we're just gonna grant the permit to carry it. So they they basically just didn't fight that one, and that's why people say it's not a carry permit case. But when Heller says they must issue him. They must issue him a license. That's the 4504 and 4506 license to carry it anywhere in the district. That was R2C58-4 permit. I think the other thing we're going to see is I think Alito's going to get in on this. I think I think the Catano case was more important than we thought. But Alito came up with the Catano conjunctive test in Catano. And that it was a weapon has to be dangerous and unusual in order to not qualify under the protections of the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I don't know what that is. Like, a, a nuclear weapon, um, I, I really don't know the exact answer to what dangerous and unusual is. It's that, you know, it's that statute of Northampton I was I was thinking javelin missile when I read that. Okay. But that's just me, you know. Okay. Well, we're starting, <laughs> to, we're starting to see, like, if you watch what's going on in Ukraine, that having a javelin uh, missile might actually be a militia weaponry. Anyway... Um, I think they're going to put the Catano conjunctive case in there, and if you and, and if if Thomas sits down with Alito and they put that in there, that a weapon must be dangerous and unusual. It, it, it goes back to their whole from the Miller case, you know, common, commonly purchased weapons that civilians would have at home and bring to militia duty. Basically, my take on it is. If you if you can buy it in New Jersey, right? So a Sig a Sig three what is it three sixty five is the hot one now. Yep. The the Glock nineteen, you know, a Smith and Wesson revolver, any of the normal stuff, anything that you have hanging on your rack over there. Yep. That qualifies at, for protection under the Second Amendment, and so I think what it's going to mean is that the stand. Remember the standard at the end of Heller was if if Dick Heller is not disqualified for, from his Second Amendment rights, that's going to be the standard. Did you pass the background check and the fingerprints? And that's it. Once you have, then you qualify for the carry permit, just like you carry qualify for the two C fifty eight three permit to purchase. Ah, and is New Jersey going to make? Is New Jersey going to make? The qualification test super super hard. I kind of doubt it because they're always crying about the money, right? And so one of the reasons that we're operating under a two dollar handgun permit and a five dollar FID card fee is this comes right this comes right out of Zimmering. This comes right out of Firearms and Policy in American Life. Zimmering said you can't charge a lot for these permits because crime control and preventing the use of handguns in crime is a serious problem that the entire community needs to address and therefore any of these permits should be handled out of the out of the general treasury that gun owners shouldn't have to pay separately for their permits because by passing the background check and getting the permit it helps everyone in the community by keeping criminals unarmed wow. and so i don't think that they're going to be able to jack up. I don't think they're going to be able to jack up the fee. You know, right now it's fifty dollars. It says in the code it's twenty. That's one of the reasons my case was held up. The court has changed it to fifty, and and my court clerk was like, "Well, you didn't give us the fifty dollar check." I kind of knew about it in advance. The problem is there's so many right there's so many different rules. The state police instructions on their website say to give the fifty dollar check to the chief of police made out to the Monmouth County Court. So I did. So it's at the chief of police office. My clerk's like, well, I can't process your appeal request because we don't have the $50 check. I'm like, what are you talking about? The chief of police has it. And they're like, well, it doesn't matter. We don't have it. And I'm like, but the state police told me to give it to the, to the chief of police. So I literally had to leave work, call the chief, meet the chief at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, get my check back, and then hand deliver my check to the Monmouth County Court because they won't process my, my appeal request without it. Wow. So, Jay, I can't thank you enough for all of this work and, and, and that you've done and offering your services and information to all the 2A lawyers out there. Jay Factor is truly one of the 2A heavy lifters in New Jersey, and we're going to have him back on the show after the Bruin decision to see what his insight is. Uh, we're also going to start lining other people up now that we know we can do remote. So, Jay, I, I really can't thank you enough for this. Uh, 
I also want to just real quick, uh, people are asking me about the hemorrhage control class. Uh, it's w- listed on our website. The next hemorrhage control class is uh, Wednesday, June 22nd. And uh, we're going to be going over more. I know I didn't answer anybody's letters or anything this week, but this is way too important to not uh, curtail. So, Jay, thank you again. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Anthony. You're the man. Absolutely fantastic show, you guys uh, out there. Uh, All the lawyers out there, if you want to get in touch with Jay. Jay, how can they get in touch with you? Uh Right, right now, I'm, I'm still on New Jersey Firearms Owner Syndicate with Mark on Facebook. And we started a new page in case Facebook gets shut down. It's 2C58 and then dash D-A-S-H-4. Uh, D-A-S-H you can contact us on that. Okay. And if uh, that fails, you can uh, just write us at talkback at gunforhireradio.com. And we will get the message to Jay. Uh, lawyers, seriously, if uh, you need a research guy, this is the guy to you. All right, well, it looks like you've done it again. Uh, you've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gun For Hire Radio. Gun For Hire Radio is a Counterthink Media production. The music used in this podcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. On behalf of our show host, Master Trainer Anthony Calandro, author of Crime Proof, Think Like a Criminal and Beat Them at Their Own Game, available at the range right now. And if he's in a good mood, he might even sign it. Or at uh, anywhere you can <laughs> buy books. Well, we love you guys. Uh, God willing, Jesus tires and the batteries hold out. We will see you again next week. On the road again. Going places that I've never been. Seeing things that I may never see again. I can't wait to get on the road again. On the road again.